Tonight's talk is the third in a series of three. So I'd like to do a brief recap of what we've talked about for the past two nights. <clears throat> and basically the, the main points we've been making are that the Buddha did not take a position on whether there is or is not a self. It's, you know, it's usually point number one in any course on Buddhism. The Buddha said there is no self, but the Buddha never said that. The one time when he was asked point blank, is there a self, is there no self, he refused to answer. Instead, he preached the process of making a sense of I or making a sense of mine as forms of karma. And thus he treats them as he does all sorts of karma, those that are unskillful, those that are skillful in a worldly sense, and those that are skillful in putting an end to karma, including the need to make an I and make a sense of mine. It's part of the Buddha's general strategy that he uses fabricated conditions to put an end to fabrications. So the question is not, is there a self or what am I? The question is, what is skillful and when I do it, either selfing or not selfing, that will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? Now notice, this is a reverse of how we usually regard these questions of karma and self or karma and not self are related. Usually we take the issue of not self as being the context and then assuming that there is no self, then the question is, well, who does the karma? Who receives the results? But the Buddha actually looked at it the other way around. Assuming that we do make actions, that we do create a sense of self, then the question is, when is it skillful to hold to a sense or perception of self? What senses of self are skillful at what times? And when is it skillful to use a perception, skillful to use a perception of not-self? Last night we talked about when it's skillful to hold the perception of self, and tonight we'll talk about when it's skillful to use the perception of not-self so that it leads to long-term welfare and happiness. One of the ironies of all this is that the perception of not-self gets classed as a healthy ego function. Remember, we talked about ego functions as something you do for the sake of happiness, and now you're going to let go of yourself for the sake of happiness, right? The Buddha himself made this point. He once talked to the monks. He said, look at the twigs and branches here in this monastery. Now, if someone came and burned all the twigs and branches in the monastery, would you say that someone is burning me or burning what belongs to me? And the monks would say, no, because... We're not twigs, we're not branches, and they don't belong to us. In the same way, the Buddha said, whatever, whatever isn't yours, let go of it. That will be to your long-term welfare and happiness. So again, he's, the whole purpose of this teaching is to bring about long-term welfare and happiness. If we think of the not-self teaching as a no-self teaching, it seems bizarre and perverse. But when you think about not-self as a perception that you apply to areas of your experience, you realize you've been doing it for a long time ever since you were a little kid and learned that your brother's truck was not your truck. You realized that there's some things that were under your control and some things that were not under your control. The things that were not under control are not yours and that it's futile to try to control them. Okay. The general problem here is that it's, we can learn this boundary between self and not self only through trial and error and it turns out to be that it's a boundary that moves. Some things are under our control at some times and not at others. And then we run into the problem that some things are, seem to be to some extent under our control, but not totally. Or things that you would like to have under your control and have been under your control in the past, but no longer are. As in a relationship that has died. Okay. Okay. This process can be made easier 
One, by talking with people, help you realize that the limits of control are normal for everyone. And there's nothing particularly wrong with you. And two, finding something else to control. And most of us do this by, say, replacing one relationship with another, <laughs> which is a long, ongoing process in, in, in desperation <laughs> and frustration. Although the Buddha also says there are other areas that we can look to in ourselves that we can actually have more control over and that are actually more productive of suffering <laughs> and productive of suffering and, and others that are more productive of happiness. Okay. And so our problem is generally that we look to the wrong people and try controlling things that lead to more suffering. The Buddha's strategy is to take this issue of defining self and defining not self and use it in a more skillful way. Understanding what actually does and does not lie under control. So someone once said, his teachings on suffering are a gift. In other words, that it's normal to be frustrated by the lack of control. And you don't under overcome that lack of control by just saying, well, I'm going to have a cosmic self and just tell myself everything is me or mine, because it doesn't work. <laughs> he says, actually, it's more useful to look what really does lie under your control and what doesn't, and to work on developing the things that are under your control and to drop the things that are not. Now, when he talks about applying the perception of not-self, he does so in line with the fact that he also teaches two levels of right view. There's the right view that leads to mundane happiness, and there's a the right view that leads to transcendent happiness. And he, he approaches the not-self teaching in two different ways. So he teaches about two levels of control and two levels in which this perception of not-self is best used. The first level of right view, the mundane right view, looks at things in terms of what's skillful and unskillful karma when judged in terms of the results in the process of what he calls repeated birth and death. Okay. Now, birth and death here operate on two levels. There's the momentary birth of the ego and the death of the ego. And then there's the birth and death of the human being. And as I said earlier, when the Buddha talks about not-self, it's in the framework of karma. And when you talk about karma, you have to eventually talk a little bit about rebirth. Okay. And so, to begin with, it's understand to that when, when the Buddha was teaching rebirth, he wasn't just repeating cultural assumptions of his day. It turns out that rebirth was a hot topic. There are a lot of people saying, this is a fool's teaching. You don't see anybody being reborn. There's a passage in the canon where this king says, I have some good friends who I know were gamblers and drinkers and everything. And I told them, okay, if you, after you die, if there really is rebirth, you really are reborn in hell, come back and tell me, okay? And he says, nobody's ever come back to tell. <laughs> I have some friends who are kind and generous and virtuous, and I tell them, hey, if you really are reborn in heaven, come back and tell me. Nobody's come back. And so there were a lot of people who did not believe in the process of rebirth. So when the Buddha did take, up, take sides on the issue, he was basically taking a stand on what was a controversial topic. But he also did it in a novel way. He didn't assume a permanent self that takes rebirth. He simply talked of rebirth as a process. Um, he said, basically, it's, it's a process of clinging and craving. What gets reborn? He doesn't say what gets reborn, but he says the process of how rebirth takes. It depends on clinging and craving. You ask yourself, do I have any clinging and craving in my mind? And he says, yes. Okay, then you've got the possibility of going on and being reborn after you die. You might think of an analogy. This is not one of his, but one that I found useful. Suppose you dream a series of dreams at night 
one dream followed by another. You never really ask about what goes from the first dream into the second dream, or from the third, second dream into the third. He simply talks about the fact that okay, one dream is followed by another. The Buddha never said that he could prove rebirth, but he did offer it as a useful working hypothesis, and saying that if you take this as a working assumption, you find that it will lead you to be more and more skillful in the way that you live, and eventually, as you develop that skillfulness, you find that the, the teaching actually is true. You'll be able to prove it for yourself toward the end. But prior to that, he says, at the very least, even if you don't want to commit yourself to the idea, he has a, several passages where he's talking like in terms of Pascal's wager. You really don't really want, aren't willing to commit yourself. You say, well, let's assume that I am reborn. And what does that mean in my life? We in the West tend to have trouble with the teaching on rebirth, largely because we want to have the path to the end of suffering and not have to abandon our cultural presuppositions. So the irony here is we look on others for having cultural presuppositions, and yet we want to hang on to our own. So it's good that we look at this in an honest way. The other problem, of course, is that we don't know how to make skillful use of this teaching. So I'd like to talk about how the Buddha would encourage a skillful way of using the teaching on rebirth. We often think of the idea of repeated birth as an extreme example of selfing. I'm going to survive death, and so I should plan for the place where I'm going to land. Okay. That's self in big letters, okay? But also, the Buddha would use it as an important lesson in not selfing. Because instead of teaching it as a consoling teaching, the Buddha focused on the fact that rebirth is really precarious. You don't really know where you're going, what you're going to be. You may be able to provide for you know, for your retirement, you may be able to provide for your old age, <laughs> but it's really hard to provide for you know where you're going to land next time around. Um, the Buddhists often talk about you know the process of death and rebirth as for sudden forced evacuation. You have no time to pack your bags, and so all you have to take is what you've got on you. And so the question is, what do you have on you? It's the qualities that you develop in the mind. And so for the Buddha says, you want to focus on developing good qualities in the mind, you have to look at these other things that you're holding on to that are causing you to have unskillful qualities in mind, learn how to let go. The only time when there's any sense of safety in the process of rebirth is after you've reached your first taste of awakening. Okay, then you guarantee that you're not going to be born as anything less than a human being. Prior to that, any old bad karma, maybe from this life or a previous lifetime, can get you at any time. So. <laughs> So the prospect of rebirth, when you look at it this way, forces you to take a long, hard look at what really is of genuine value in your lifetime. What will you take with you and what we have to leave behind? There's a passage where a young monk named Ratabala is talking to a king. The king asks him, well, you know, why, why on earth did you ordain? Your family was wealthy, your relatives were healthy, you were healthy. Um, why did you want to be a monk? And Ratabala says, well, I saw these problems in life. That um, the world is swept away, he says, it does not endure, offers no shelter, there's no one in charge, um, and it's a slave to craving. And so the king basically said, well, what is this that it offers no shelter and there's no one in charge? Because after all, you know, I'm a king, I'm in charge. And Ratabella says, well, one, when you're ill and you're in pain, can you ask the people around you, your servants, can you say to them, okay, could you share out this pain so I don't have to feel so much of it? No, you've got to endure the pain your own. And when you die, can you take everything, all your wealth with you? And the king says no. Okay, that's, you've got to focus on what you can take with you. 
And so what can take you can can you take with you? There's a teaching where the Buddha says, Gamasagomi, which means I'm the owner of my actions. And actions here mean not only your actions concerning other people, but also the qualities and habits that you build into the mind. And this is an area where there's a huge emphasis on the teachings that you develop what he calls seven treasures, the treasures of conviction, virtue, a sense of shame and compunction, learning, generosity, and discernment. These, things, these are things that stick with the mind. Similarly with the perfections, perfections of generosity, virtue, um, endurance, so on down the list. You notice in all these many lists that the Buddha talks about, qualities you take with you, generosity and renunciation are prominent. And the Buddha teaches them as not so much as having to go without, but you trade. You trade something of lesser value for something of greater value. In other words, when you're generous, you learn to see that the item you give away is not yours, and that the quality of generosity that this developed in the mind is more worth holding on to. So you begin to see these the things that you've been holding on to. Maybe you're better off if you look at them as not yourself. Okay. Similar when you meditate on goodwill. You learn to see ill will as something you don't want to, want to identify with. Because if you take a lot of ill will with you, you're going to have a lot of problems. In particular, the Buddha talked about developing good qualities by learning how to dissociate yourself from what he called the eight worldly dharmas. These are gain, material gain, material loss, gain of status, loss of status, praise and criticism, pleasure and pain. Now, you'll notice these things come in pairs. It's not that you just get, 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 get. You get and you lose. I mean, if anything, the past couple of years with the stock market have shown us that. And the same with status. I mean, and you think about the way people behave when they gain material wealth, when they gain status, and the really stupid things they do once they have their power. Think, okay, I've got power now, I can do what I want. Hey, you know. Um, but when you look at the fact that these things come your way for a while and then go away, the question then becomes, okay, when they come, what's the best use I can gain out of my wealth? When my wealth goes, what good lessons do I learn? For one thing, you learn who your friends are. <laughs> it's the same with status and loss of status. When you gain status, okay, you've got it briefly. What's the best that you're going to do with it? What's the best thing you could do with it? Because you know you're going to lose it at some point. It teaches you to be wiser, realizing this is not really me, it's not really mine. How do I make the best use of it? There's a story where John Lee one time was approached by a man whose friends were teasing him on the teaching of not-self. And they're saying, hey, if this body is not yours, why don't you let us hit it? <laughs> why, don't, why, don't, why don't you let us beat it? And he was at a loss for what to say. So he went to see a John Lee, and a John Lee said, okay, it's not mine. I borrowed it. I have to give it back in good condition. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> So when you lose your wealth, how do you give it back in good condition? Okay, okay you've basically you've, you've used it for good things, and then when the time when you have to lo lose it, okay, you've, you don't have any regrets because you got the best use out of it while you had it. The same with status. When you lose your status, so John Lee has a great line. He says, you know, if they call you a dog, remember that dogs have no laws. <laughs> when you have a position, you have to behave in a certain way, you have to observe certain responsibilities, but when you have, don't have that position anymore, you don't have those, those responsibilities. So, 
There's actually a positive side for both gain and loss. When the Buddha has you think on the topic of rebirth, he said it helps you to overcome attachment to wealth, disappointment, and grief because you can remind yourself that whatever extremes of wealth there have been, you've actually experienced that already. Whatever extremes of poverty there are, you've experienced those already as well. You've been through this many, many times. And as for grief, he says, the number of times you have lost your relatives is without number. Okay. And thinking this way helps you to overcome your petty resentments and your pride. Now when you think about basically investing in your future in this way by trying to develop good qualities, it's not just an exercise in delayed gratification. You gain a sense of self in the present moment that's based on a desire always to learn to do what is skillful, always ready to learn from your mistakes, and that's a really healthy sense of self. It's a really good state of mind to dwell in. Contemplation of this nature helps lead you, lead you to a sense of empowerment, which we talked about last night, the power that you do have to shape your life. But it also requires heedfulness. You have to be careful in how you order your priorities, that you can't hold on to things that are going to leave you. But eventually it leads also to a sense of disenchantment. And the, word, the, the Pali word for disenchantment means literally that you don't want to feed on things anymore. This combination of empowerment, heedfulness, heedfulness, and disenchantment is a healthy one. For the one hand, you just don't give up at the beginning. Instead, you develop your powers, you push against those characteristics of what's inconstant, stressful, and not-self, and you find that a measure of happiness can be found in that way. You develop discernment and wisdom in deciding what's really important in life and which sorts of happiness are more valuable than others. But then you begin to run up against the limitations of that happiness, the limitations of that sort of activity. You work hard to get good things, but then you have to give them away. Okay? You gain a look good lifetime, but it also inevitably involves aging, illness, and death. Even heavenly beings have to die. And you also see that comfort can usually lead to heed heedlessness. You know, people get it easy, and things get nice, and they start saying, hey, this is pretty good. I'm, I'm, I've arrived. I don't really have to care about how, how I behave anymore. And so that whatever sense of sort of inner treasures you build up over this, this time, even those are not all that secure. When you take this long-term view, it makes the idea of planning a really nice narrative. And you see this a lot in Asia. Um, there was, I once knew a woman who had built a really nice little hut for, in the monastery there. In, in a, it was a forest, forest monk hut. And I said, boy, you really are, you know, you're building your little palace here for your next lifetime. She says, oh, no, I've already built my palace for the next time. It's a really nice hut down there in the city, you know. <laughs> this is just my little vacation hut for the, my next lifetime. Okay. But when you begin to think about, okay, how long is that vacation hut going to last her in her next lifetime? Um, you begin to realize that it seems petty. Because after all, the Buddha talks about how over the course of your many lifetimes, the, sh the amount of number of tears you're shed, you've shed, or the amount of water you've shed in your tears is greater than the water in the oceans. Or even the amount of blood you've shed from being beheaded <laughs> over those many lifetimes is more than the water in the oceans. Go look out at the New York Harbor t tomorrow morning and think about that. I mean, you've lost that much blood by having your head cut off, you know, how many times in the past lifetimes. And these realizations can cause you to start looking for release. And it's this point that we're ready for the next level of right view, which is looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. 
In other words, looking at, okay, what in the mind leads to suffering and what can be done to put an end to suffering. The Buddha's analysis of suffering under the Four Noble Truths talks about five clinging aggregates. With the emphasis on the word clinging here, you cling to your form, the body, you cling to feelings of pleasure and pain, you cling to perceptions, which are the labels you place on things, the way you identify things in the world. You cling to f metal fabrication, which are all the thoughts that you create around the world, and you cling to your consciousness. Now, each of these aggregates, we, we, talk, we think to think of them, tend to think of them as things, but they're actually activities. Clinging is an activity, the aggregates are all activities. And they all involve intention. Clinging involves intention. So for the, what the, the Buddhist teachings in terms of the Four Noble Truths, especially the truth on suffering, comes down to the fact that you can put an end to suffering by changing your intentions. Okay? Also, remember the point that we made the other night, that when the Buddha talks about clinging, it's a metaphor for the activity of feeding on something. Now remember, the, 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 the mind does not have hands that it holds on to, and it doesn't have a mouth that feeds. But basically, for the Buddha, the image of clinging means it's something you do again and again and again as trying to find a means for happiness. Of course, this can have its problems, because we find a certain sort of happiness which seems to be okay, but it's going to cause bad results down the line. One of the most extreme examples I know about is that they one time found what the pleasure center is in the, in the brains of mice, and they put a little electrodes in there, and then they had this little buzz bar that they could touch with the electrodes. And the mice had food, and they had really nice cages and everything, but they spent all their time buzzing against the bar until they died. I mean, they wouldn't even eat. They just kept buzzing and buzzing and buzzing to get that happiness. And so you realize that sometimes your approach for happiness and clinging to things is going to cause trouble. It may not be that extreme, but you look at the world around you and see all the harm that comes from people clinging to different, very unskillful ways of form of happiness to find happiness. Now the Buddha's approach is to turn the aggregates into a path. Instead of just clinging to them, you, you learn how to do these activities in a more skillful way. And particularly you do this to give it something good to feed on as you develop strengths of conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentra concentration, and discernment. And particularly he talks of concentration as a form of good feeding for the mind. In other words, you take the form of the body, like we did just now with the breath, make that your object, try to induce feelings of ease, rapture, pleasure. You hold on to the perception of breath filling the body. You think about and you evaluate the breath, that's a form of fabrication. And you're conscious of all this, so you're taking those five aggregates and you're turning them into your path. Now, at this level of the practice, the teaching on not-self means you learn how to look at your distracting thoughts that come up in your meditation as not yours, that you don't have to go along with them. This is where I think the image of the committee is a useful one. Different members of the committee are offering different thoughts for you to think about as you're trying to meditate, and you say, no thanks, not tonight, not right now. Then as you get more and more skilled in the meditation, you learn to look at forms of pleasure that lie outside of a concentrated mind, as being not worth pursuing. Back, back in the 1950s, when they were concerned about Thailand's becoming communist, um, American advisors went in, you know, they sent sociologists, anthropologists to look into Buddhism to see what can we, you know, what is there in Buddhism that's, that's conducive to keeping Thailand, you know, on our side? 
And they found one of the things that they really worried about was that these teachings on um, contentment and finding happiness inside, this is really bad for capitalism. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they actually asked the monks to stop teaching those topics. <laughs> Fortunately, the Thais had a sense of humor, and they said, ha, right, okay. <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting to think about that, as, as you're trying to find happiness inside, that you're actually going against the, the economic order here. <clears throat> anyway, to get back on topic. Um, okay. Now, as you get more and more skillful in your practice of concentration, your sense of skill matures and grows more subtle your sensitivity to what is stressful and not stressful in the mind will grow more subtle as well. And this, at this point, you find that your standards for what really, really qualifies as happiness and pleasure grow more and more demanding. And so you, find to dis- you learn to disidentify more and more with unskillful things, even unskillful on a very subtle level. Ultimately, you're going to reach the point where you realize the only thing that's standing between me and absolute happiness is this sense of I am doing this, which is central to all the path. Remember that f- question, what when I do this will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness, which gets you quite far, but then you begin to run into the limits of how far this doing can go, how far the, the happiness of fabrication can go. You realize that the doing is a fabrication and that the I that's there as the doer in all this, and the, your concept of the I as the pr- receiver of the happiness is a fabrication, it is for a form of clinging, it's a form of suffering that ultimately you're going to have to let go. Because you see that even the subtlest sense of, of self causes stress, even in the concentration. Um, you find that any way that you define yourself, as the Buddha says, when you define yourself, you limit yourself. And that limitation becomes, at that point, the one thing standing between you and true happiness. You also see that any thoughts based on the conceit that I am the thinker or I am the doer of this meditation, they come back to attack you and they involve you in conflict. Particularly the sense of self that would involve conceit that can get very subtle and sometimes the Buddha talks about people coming to their practice of concentration with a type of conceit which leads them to compare themselves to others. You know, my jhana is better than your jhana, or my jhana is better than theirs. And he says that really gets in the way of, leading, of seeing a, a happiness that lies even deeper. Okay. So, what do you do? And this is where you start applying the, the perception of not-self to all things, not just things outside of your meditation, but also to the process of meditation itself. Now, up to this point, the perception of not-self has been a counterpart to your self-perception. In other words, you're learning to identify your sense of self with more skill, and so the not-self is just the what lies outside the boundary. But at this point, you begin to see that any kind of selfing is unskillful, and so the not-self perception has to be applied to everything. So the Buddha says that there are four stages in doing this as you practice your meditation. First, you have to master concentration. He talks about mastering in the same way that an archer would master his archery or her archery. In other words, to learn to fire, fire, shoot arrows far in in fast, excuse me, in fast succession, and to pierce great masses. And that refers to the quickness of your discernment and also to the intensity of your concentration. 
Okay, once you're mastered, once you've really mastered your concentration, i.e., you can enter it when you need to. As I said the other night, if you find yourself you know, lacking in a sense of ease and, and rapture, you can just give yourself a jhana hit when you need it. So once you've mastered it, then you look, turn around and look at it, and you begin to perceive those aggregates that we talked about in the concentration, the form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness that you've been working on. You begin to perceive them, that even they have a very subtle level of inconstancy. It's never quite as stable as you'd like it to be. Now in that inconstancy, there's stress. And the Buddha has a whole list of adjectives. He says, you see these things as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, emptiness, not self. You can take your choice as to which perception you find most effective in inducing a sense of disenchantment, which remember is you know, that you no longer feed, want to feed on these things. Once you get a sense of disenchantment, the Buddha says that you incline your mind through the perception to the view of dispassion and cessation as peaceful and exquisite. Now this, the process of dispassion here is important because we do things because we have a sense of passion for them. We've been doing the practice, developing good qualities of mind, developing concentration because we feel passionate about the happiness that these things are going to give us. But when we turn to see them as not really, at that point, no longer worth the effort, the dispassion here is important. And this is what these perceptions are supposed to do. Remember, when the Buddha has us apply the perception of not-self, he's not saying there is no self, but simply that this stuff really does not totally lie under your control. And for that reason, you lose taste for it. You lose the passion to keep doing it. And at that point, then he says, then you drop these perceptions and the mind stays right there. Okay, and then when the mind stays right there, he says there are two results. Either you gain the level of awakening, which is called non-returning, or you gain full awakening, arahanship. Now the difference has to do with how you relate. Once you have this perception of the deathless that follows on dispassion, you can relate to it in two ways. One is that you see it as an object of the mind, in which there still is a very lingering sense of self, a sense of I that hovers around this, that's experiencing this or that sense of self gets dissolved. And this is why the Buddha has that teaching that all phenomena are not self. Because you, you may have known this, there's a teaching that all fabricated things are inconstant, all fabricated things are stressful. And then he turns around and says, all phenomena are not self. Now sometimes people interpret that and say, well this means that even nirvana is not self. But remember, not self is a perception, and even in nirvana there's not going to be any perceptions. So what he's trying to, ha where that particular teaching is appropriate is where, and I hope someday you all get to this point, okay, where the only thing standing between you and total awakening is the sense that I am the perceiver of this awakening. Okay. And at that point you have to say, well, even in awakening this doesn't really belong to me anymore. I don't really need this sense of me here, because it's unconditioned. Remember from the very early talks, we talked about how sense of self is a strategy, your sense of not-self is a strategy. When you finally reach nirvana, you don't need either strategy. It's there. It's unconditioned. It doesn't require that you do anything at all. And so the teaching all phenomena are not-self, that takes the I out of the conceit that I am. At the same time, the Buddha recommends that you put the mind in a position where you simply see phenomena arising and passing away. 
anything that arises in passing away. He says you apply one label to it simply as stress. You don't think of, and when you're in that perception, the idea of these phenomena existing don't occur. It doesn't occur to you because you see them passing away all the time. The idea of their not existing doesn't occur to you because they keep on arising again and again and again. So you're trying to put the mind in a position where even the idea of existing and not existing just doesn't occur to you. You're just watching stress arising and passing away. And that takes the am out of I am, or the am not out of I am. So we, basically you're deconstructing the sense of I am, both by attacking the I and attacking the idea of existence and non-existence, simply by looking at things as they rise and pass away. And at this point, he's, the Buddha says, you simply look at these things as stress. Now remember that in the duties of the Four Noble Truths, the duty with regard to stress is simply to comprehend it to the point of dispassion. So all the duties of the Four Noble Truths, comprehending stress, abandoning its cause, realizing its cessation, and then developing the path to its cessation, at this point all get reduced to one duty, which is simply comprehension to dispassion. At this point, you let go. And at the point the Buddha says the arahant has transcended even dispassion, which is the highest dharma. In other words, you're beyond all dharmas, you're beyond all phenomena at that point. When the mind has reached this point, there's no longer any need for any producer, any consumer, any hunter, or any feeder of happiness, because you found the ultimate happiness. You look in the writings of Ajahn Mahabhur and Ajahn Lee, and they both say very clear that in awakening then the perceptions of either self or not self they no longer apply. They're both strategies, and the mind at that point has no need for strategies because it's found a true happiness that doesn't rely on activity at all. Or as a John Sawat, one of my teachers once said, he's when there's the experience of deathless happiness, you don't really care who's experiencing it. The question doesn't really occur to you. It's no longer an issue. The experience is sufficient in and of itself. So what we've been describing here is a special form of consciousness that's not related to the six senses. And so there's a freedom even from being involved in space and time at that point. But once there's a, the experience of awakening, there is a return to space and time. But it's, that sense of freedom carries over. So even though the arahant still can feel things, see things, hear things, their experience of the sensory world is very different from that of ours. There's an image that's given in the Majjhima Nikaya. Josh, it's at Majjhima 146, okay? Where a Nandaka, a monk who's been teaching a group of nuns, asked them, okay, suppose that you had a cow and there was skin on the cow. And you go through and you cut all the tendons and connective tissue that connect that, that skin to the cow. Okay, and then you put the skin back on. Okay, now would it be connected the way, same way it was before? He says, no. Even though it's very close to the cow, it's right next to the cow, there's not that sense of connection. In the same way, he says, okay, once, you've, once your discernment has cut all clings and attachments, okay, then even though you experience the six senses, it's a sense of being disjoined from them. In other words, they're there, but you're no longer involved. So you can still function, but there's not that sense of, of being sort of the, the object or the subject of these sensations. And at this point, there's no longer any obsession with any of this stuff, and so there's no longer any limitation at all. You're not defined by anything. You can't be described by, and in any way. 
That's the kind of freedom the Buddha is talking about, and that's the kind of happiness that can be attained through using the perception of not-self. So to, to re basically give a recap of the, the stages, the Buddha talks first in the sense of finding happiness on the mundane level, realizing that this is not just a one-life proposition. Okay, there's, it's a long-term proposition. And so you have to ask yourself, what are your sense of priorities here? What really is important in life? And the Buddha says, it's like, like an evacuation. Suddenly you say, okay, fire is sweeping through your building, you've got to jump, you've got to go right now. Okay, you can't take any luggage, all you can take are the qualities of mind. And, and you think about you know, immigrants coming to America when they had to leave suddenly, they came with their skill sets. And so it's your skill sets that you carry over to the next lifetime. So what skills do you want to develop? What qualities of mind do you want? And the Buddha recommends that you develop qualities of conviction, virtue, generosity, and discernment. Um, and you learn to see that the things that you tend to hold on to this lifetime, as you hold on to them, you know, they're ultimately going to be torn from your grasp. And, and at the same time, you, the state of mind that's been clinging to them, that doesn't leave you. That, that's, a, that's a hangover, you know, a holdover. And so it's best... <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting Freudian slip, gosh. <laughs> so it's good to practice learning how to let go of the things that are really not important so you can develop that quality of generosity. That quality of generosity is what goes with you. As for right view in the ultimate sense, you want to develop the path so you can learn how to comprehend suffering. And finally get to the point where you've developed the qualities of the path as far as they can take you. And that's when you start applying the perception of not-self to everything, even the path itself, so that when you relinquish it, relinquish any sense of I or mine around anything, you find that you touch the deathless happiness. It doesn't require the strategies of self, doesn't require the strategies of not-self, so you're on beyond both. So to review the major points from the first last three nights, First, remember the Buddha was not interested in asking the question of the existence or non-existence or the nature of a self. He wants you simply to view the process of selfing and not selfing as strategies to happiness. And particularly, look at the area how you relate to your sense of control. What areas in life do you control? What areas in life do you not control? How do you work out the difference? And how do you learn to deal with the fact that those lines of control and not control are always shifting? What kind of coherent sense of self can you use as a strategy? And the one that I've been recommending all along is the idea, is that the idea of whatever I may be, I want to identify, at least for the purpose of the practice, as the self who is willing to learn from mistakes, the self who always wants to try to do what is skillful, And then the Buddha learns, wants you to teach this, use this quality here of looking at the area of control. You learn how to use it both for developing happiness on the Monday level and happiness of, the, of ultimate freedom. So again, the, the teaching on not-self is not a statement that there is no self. It, look at it as a perception that you're going to apply in that question of where do I have control, what, where do I not have control, and where I do have control, how do I make best use of that control for long-term welfare and happiness? So those are the points I wanted to cover tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.